Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. My name is Greg. As David mentioned, I'm one of the elders in the city location, and I get to preach from time to time. Um, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, we couldn't decide if this sermon was best in our Controversial Jesus series that we just finished or to uh, kind of resume the series in Matthew. It's actually the next text in Matthew, so I guess it's kind of both. And so in that sense, uh, we're going to get uh, controversial, I guess. Um, people say there are two things that you shouldn't talk about, politics and religion. And I'm going to talk about both this morning, so you can uh, pray for me. Um, you know, the intersection of faith and politics in America seems to be um, a constant source of debate and a constant source of lament, complaints. Uh, are we a Christian nation who has strayed from our foundational principles, or are we a pluralistic society suffering from the intrusion of religious thought in our secular life? Well, if you're looking for the answers to those questions, uh, you're not going to get them from me. Uh, you'll have to look somewhere else. Um, and also, as an aside, if you're looking to uh, up your fishing game and like find some golden coins and pay off your taxes, I, I'm not going to tell you how to do that either. Yeah, sorry. You, the, the exit is back there. Um, but I, I will say this. Uh, there was a 2019 Gallup survey that found that people were six times more likely to talk about politics than religion. Uh, so even though you're not supposed to talk about either, I guess people are doing it, and, well, maybe I should say they're only talking about politics. Um, now, I, found that I have found this to be true, right? In uh, throwing caution to the wind, uh, I have started conversations about both politics and religion while at work, shame on me, and I find that uh, the room falls much quieter, much faster when I bring up religion than when I bring up politics. I think in politics, everybody can find something to complain about, and that is a rallying cry, right? Uh, but with religion, people get a little bit more nervous about complaining because that might be thin ice. Um, in today's text, we see that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, is approached by a group of temple tax collectors. So these aren't the sort of bad tax collectors uh, that we often read about uh, who are betraying the Jewish people and serving the Romans. These are actually the good guys, if you will, at least from the Jewish perspective. They serve the temple and they are trying to collect taxes to support the temple. And the issue of whether Jesus pays the temple tax or not is really an issue of loyalty, an issue of, um, you know, is Jesus pro-temple? Why is this important? Well, there's a growing belief amongst the Jewish people in the first century that God is going to renew and restore the Jewish nation. Uh, they have returned from their exile, which is a punishment they suffered for abandoning God. And the thought is, if we can get our act together and we can restore this Jewish worship and we can like follow God the way we were supposed to, God will bless us. He will deliver us from the Romans. He will set our people, uh, set our nation on a mountain and make us you know, sort of the pinnacle of, of everything in the world. Uh, he will reestablish David, King David's throne. Right? And there are many prophecies to support this. So it kind of makes sense. And so now Jesus, this wildly popular upstart preacher, you know, he's on all the socials, he's on your TikTok feed, you can't escape him. 
they come to him and they're like, hey, are you pro-temple? Like, do you have some temple street cred? Because we need to know where you stand on the issue. Now, uh, this is uh, not a new thought. And people have often thought or believed that God was going to renew the world through social action, through political change, um, that if we could get the government to reflect God, then God would bless that and like take it to the next level. Um, you see that obviously in the Jewish uh, mindset. Uh, you also see that today, right? Modern American Christian nationalists have expressed similar goals. Um, prominent politicians are telling us that the founders of the country of America knew that our nation was blessed by God, that we had a special purpose in the world, and consequently that purpose is under attack. And so we need to rally the faithful and get our act together so that God uh, would you know, intervene and right the ship. Paula White, a popular televangelist, uh, expressed this sentiment in a prayer that she made publicly after the 2020 election results came in. She prayed, quote, we override the will of man for the will of God right now. And we ask by the mercy and the blood of Jesus that you overturn it, 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 speaking about the 2020 election. Now, on the flip side, the left-leaning Christians, you know, they also are engaged in their own quest for societal renewal through political action. In fact, sociologist George Yancey reports in his latest book that his data show that on the whole, progressive Christians are more politically active than conservatives. You might have some extreme examples of conservatives and that's what you see in your feed and in your social media and on the internet. But if you look at the group as a whole, progressive Christians are more likely to be engaged politically. And he says this, progressive Christians have an underlying value system that leads them to a stronger political loyalty than the value system of conservative Christians. This can be explained by quotes such as this one, which we'll have here. This is from James Cone, who is a um, prominent um, black liberation theologian. If the white and black churches do not represent Christ's redemptive work in the world, and Cone would define that as liberating the oppressed. Okay? So if the, basically, if the church isn't doing Jesus' work, where then is the church to be found? As always, his church is where wounds are being healed and chains are being struck off. Well, that sounds pretty good. I can get behind that, I guess. It does not matter in the least whether the community of liberators designate their work as Christ's own work. What is important is that the oppressed are being liberated. Cone argues that the church is not defined by the gathering of God's faithful people, but rather by the gathering of anyone who would relieve human suffering. I respectfully disagree. I've been in many hospitals, in many operating rooms where reverence for God was completely absent. You could argue that we were doing the Lord's work, but we were not being the Lord's church. Yet, Cone speaks for many progressives when he elevates the work of social justice and political action above faith-filled Christian devotion. So in the end, regardless of which side you're on, whether you lean to the left or you lean to the right, 
I think we can all agree that the political discourse in our country has reached like a fever pitch. Professor and pastor Ryan Berg describes the situation this way. He writes that liberals and nuns, and nuns would be people who have no religious affiliation, self-disclosed, no religious background. Liberals and nuns went to the left. Conservatives and evangelicals went to the right, and there is no middle anymore. Our politics has become religion. It has a religious fervor to it now that it didn't have even 20 or 30 years ago. Now, I thought that 20 years ago we were in pretty bad state, but we must be getting worse. Politics as religion means politics as identity, your tribal identity. Several polls have shown that um, the label evangelical, which used to mean uh, you know, endorsing and believing a certain set of theological beliefs, has now morphed so that self-described evangelicals are more closely aligned along their political beliefs than their theological stances. They've abandoned the religious or theological aspects of evangelicalism, and now evangelical means I support these candidates and these policies. And this kind of redefining of identity is common on both sides. Both sides of the aisle are working hard to define themselves. They draw the lines in the sand. They say, this is who we are. These are our values. This is what we're uh, pursuing. Uh, and they're going to invite you to join them. But what they're not going to say is, come one, come all. We accept everybody. This is a safe space. They're going to say, come on in and get in line. Come join us. We have figured it out. Politics as religion also means tribal morality. Each political tribe has its own sacred cows. Policies that you must support, candidates that you must get behind. What if you, as a discerning voter, wanted to find a candidate who was platforming or, or, or um, campaigning on a platform to end both racism and abortion? I haven't seen that candidate, have you? The current political system has no home for you. Political parties present themselves as morally superior to their opponents, and they use social pressure to produce conformity. Or worse yet, you show up and you find out that you're, the social morality police have already canceled you, and you have no hope of getting involved. Right? I mean, politics has become a modern Phariseeism, right? Heaping on a bunch of rules on top of God's plan. Support the right causes. Listen to the right podcasts. Read the right authors. Upvote the right tweets. I mean, do we call them tweets anymore? I don't know. X's? I, doesn't, I don't know. With so much tribalism in the air, what is a discerning and biblical Christ follower to do? Surely it is a blessing and a privilege to be engaged in the political system, right? To, to participate in self-governance. Many people will never have that opportunity. We don't want to neglect our civic duty, our civic responsibility, but the political tribes are pressuring us to choose the side. What would Jesus do if he was caught in the middle of the fray? Lucky for us, Jesus was caught in the middle of the fray. We have a text in front of us that helps us gain some insight into how Jesus thought about and navigates these issues, and I'm hopeful that we can draw some crucial insights out of this. All right, but first, a little bit about background about this temple tax. Okay, the two drachma tax. This was originally a tax 
instituted in the law of Moses, uh, a tax to support national religious practice. So the people of Israel are liberated from Egypt. They're wandering in the desert. God describes and explains to them, basically instructs them to build this massive mobile tent meeting space. And they call this the tabernacle. And it's uh, the initial uh, proceeds to like build this thing are a donation, a one-time donation from all the people. But then there is a law basically prescribed in Exodus chapter 30 that says every Jewish man over the age of 20 needs to keep paying into this because this temple will need, or this tabernacle first, uh, a temple eventually will need continual maintenance. You got to keep up the building. Uh, Eventually they go into the land of Canaan They're given the the promised land. They build a solid, physical, permanent temple. King Solomon does it, and it's magnificent. Gold everywhere. Gold's pretty expensive. So, you know, you got to keep it up. Uh, So they keep paying this tax. Uh, They get exiled, right? The Babylonians come in, wipe them out, take them away. And when they come back, they rebuild their temple. And this is the same temple that was standing in Jesus' day. If you think about this, this is a thousand years of temple taxes, Right? You want to talk about entrenched institutions? Right? I mean, America, we've got like 200, 250 years or some history. I'm talking about 1,000 years. You think about something that everybody was expected to do and support. I mean, who in their right mind is going to come against 1,000 years of temple tax payment and say, no, that's bad. Like, we're not going to do that. Apparently, Jesus. <laughs> but only sort of. Okay? Um, in fact, when the guys, when these uh, temple tax collectors come to Jesus, they probably think they're doing him a favor, right? Like, we're going to toss him a softball. We kind of like this guy. Uh, Jesus, why don't you come out? You know, we'll make a day of it. We'll get some photographers there. You can pay your tax in front of the people. They'll see that you, like, support the cause, you know, and you can put it up on your socials, and everyone will know, like, you're, like, legit. Well, Jesus, this is your shot to show us where you stand on the issues. You're not going to throw away your shot. Are you? By no means. Jesus is young, scrappy, and hungry. He's not throwing away his shot. And Peter's knee-jerk reaction to this kind of shows us, right? Peter recognizes, like, this is a thorny issue. They ask him, doesn't your rabbi pay the tax? Like, we are assuming he pays the tax. This is your chance to tell us he pays the tax. And all Peter says is, yes. And then he, like, gets out of there before he says anything controversial. Um, When he shows up with Jesus, though, Jesus has an interesting question for him. And this is going to help us understand where Jesus really stands. Jesus uses this analogy. He says, Simon, anytime someone refers to you by like your real name, you got to worry. Like your parents, you come home and they use your full name, you know you're in trouble, right? He says, Simon, a king has a tax. Who pays the tax? The people or the princes? The obvious answer is the people pay the tax, right? The prince doesn't pay taxes to the king. The prince, in fact, not only is the prince exempt from the tax, the prince is enjoying the tax. I mean, who's paying for the robe on the prince's back? The people. Who's paying for the food on the prince's table? The people. Who's paying for the roof over the prince's head? The people. The prince does not pay the tax. The prince enjoys the benefits of the tax. And so Jesus says, you're correct. The sons are free. But who are these sons? I mean, God is clearly the king living in the palace, which is the temple. But who are the sons? Jesus has already stated that he 
is the son of God. And if he hasn't said it clearly enough before, he's saying it again now. But sons is plural. And by the, we see by the fact that Jesus pays Peter's way in this text, Peter is also exempt. Peter is also a son. Jesus, the only begotten son of the father, is free. But Peter, the adoptive son, by his affiliation, his familial connection, his faith in Jesus, is also a son. So both the biological sons and the adopted sons are exempt. Both are free. The house belongs to them both. You see, this is the fundamental difference between human religious effort and biblical Christianity. Human religion emphasizes the duty of the servant. Pay your temple tax, pay your church tithe, pay your political dues, adhere to the moral code, fulfill your duties, perform your rituals. These activities will keep you in the king's good graces. But they must be done continually. You know, you can never quite do enough to say I've done it all. This is why Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to enter the kingdom of heaven on their own effort, their righteousness, their, their moral uprightness and their list of accomplishments must exceed that of the religious elites, the Pharisees. You must be more righteous than the professional uh, believers. That sets a pretty high bar, an impossible bar. You can never do enough. Every moment, every hour, every day, you must perfectly fulfill the responsibilities and be um, perfect. Otherwise, you don't measure up. But Christianity, Christianity is not interested in producing servants. Christianity is interested in producing sons. We don't emphasize our duty. We emphasize his deliverance. God is not looking for more servants. God is looking for a family. Through a spiritual birth, you and I can become children of the king. And among other things, we find ourselves exempt from the endless cycle of religious duties. We don't do these things to earn the king's favor. We're not worker bees clocking in and clocking out. But we're not freeloading children either. No, we become faithful stewards in God's house because we live in the house. We have an ownership stake in the house because we are children of the king. We enjoy its benefits. Okay, so if Jesus is God's only son and his followers are um, adopted children, why does Jesus pay the tax? I don't know what your experience is like each April, uh, but about April 10th, I realize there's a deadline for my taxes. And I go fumbling through my, ma uh, my mail and I find my W-2. And then I read how much money the government has already taken from me. And then I get on TurboTax and I do some stuff and I figure out how much more money they're going to take from me. And then I go back to my mail and I start looking for receipts so I can itemize some deductions to bring the tax burden down. And it's stressful. <laughs> um, frankly, 98% of all Americans claim as many deductions as they can, which means everybody trying to get their money back. And since my general attitude towards taxes is I should pay the least amount that's legally allowed, why is Jesus paying this tax. I mean, he's sparred with the religious authorities about much thornier issues than this, right? He said, I forgive sins. Can a man forgive sins? He says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than the king who built this temple? Um, before Abraham was, I am. Do you think you're God? Like, Jesus is pretty good at controversy. You know, if he's, if he's got a plan to like avoid controversy in his earthly ministry, he's not very good at that. So why not fight this battle? 
Honestly, I think this is the important principle here. Jesus' um, primary concern is fulfilling the mission that God has given him. Jesus will summarize this mission in three chapters from now in, in Matthew 20. He says, the son of man came not to be served like a king, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These other controversies that Jesus takes head on or creates uh, seemingly out of nowhere are central to the understanding of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is doing. His disciples and all, many around him are tempted to think of him as a military Messiah, overthrowing the Romans, or political Messiah, reestablishing the nation of Israel. But Jesus has come as a suffering Messiah because he understands that the biggest need, the greatest uh, challenge to humanity is their separation from God. And someone has to stand in the gap, absorb the punishment for that sin and create a path to God. Jesus does not want his disciples to be distracted from that version of the Messiah, from that revelation of the Messiah. Jesus is so focused on his redemptive work and the cross that will accomplish it. He does not want to engage in anything that could derail that. The road to Golgotha, the hill on which he dies, is paved with controversial issues. Can a man forgive sins? Can God's law become obsolete? Will this temple pass away? Jesus addresses all of these and much more. He wins some, he offends others, but the questions are central to the mission. But when a mission or a question arises that is not central, he chooses to submit himself to that authority and move on so he can stay focused on the gospel work. He also, in paying this tax, fulfills the law of Moses. Because the law says that every Jewish male over the age of 20 must pay the tax. And Jesus, in order to, as he himself has said, fulfill the law and prophets, to, to give us a picture of fullness in righteousness and holiness, he does it. He submits to this authority. Even though he, as the son of God, is above the law. So I want to consider three takeaways as we wrap this up. So the first is the sons are free. When Jesus says this, he is making a claim to be the son of God, no doubt. Only at this time, only the Jewish people had access to God. Only the Jewish nation had received a revelation from God or had a, a relationship built on promises from God, conditional though they were. This was a place of great honor for the Jewish people. Jesus elevates his position higher than that. He says, the Jewish people, you are in a servant relationship with God. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. That was the Old Testament. That's the essence of it. But Jesus says, no, 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 but I'm a son. And what he says in that moment is that all who follow him, all who believe in him, all who place their faith in his righteousness, his ability to fulfill the law and earn that position will be elevated with him. So with sonship comes not just exemption from taxes, but exemption from every religious work, every duty, every task that you could try to do to earn God's favor, you're exempt because a child has a position. You know, in their being, in their existence, they occupy a position that is higher than that of a servant. And that position cannot be lost. The, the conditional promises of the Old Testament become immutable guarantees. You can build your life on this because God has said it and he will not undo it. 
But something else, there's another kind of freedom that comes with this. We become free from the political tribalism of our day. When a political party or a group comes to you and says, if you don't vote for our candidate, if you don't donate to our party, if you don't oppose this other policy, then you're morally inferior. Then you haven't done the right thing. Like you don't add up, you don't measure up. You need to get with us. You know what I tell you to do? Ignore them. It's a lie. Your value in this world is not your vote. If you are a child of God, if you are, thank you, thank you very much. If you are a child of God, if you are born, adopted into the king's family, you are uniquely equipped to do something that others cannot do. You have a role and a commission. You have access to the values of the king, the, the, the character of the king. In fact, the spirit and the power of the king resides inside of you so that you can display the king in a way that no one else can do. In my business, in medicine, we talk about working at the top of your license. So I'm a surgeon, which means that I cut people open for a living. Not everybody gets to do that. If I stop doing surgery so that I can fill out paperwork and make phone calls, I'm not serving patients well. The system will break down because no one will get surgery. You, believer, son and daughter of the king, you have a responsibility, a mission, a unique gift that others don't have. And if you neglect it to do other things, you have not served the world well. Amen? Besides that, you should be listening to what God says about you, not what the pundits are saying about you. Because as a pundit, you're a number, you're a, you're a sociological concept, right? Your label means you're going to do this, or you're going to do that. But what God says about you is he says you are washed, you are cleansed, you are delivered, you are renewed, you are holy and righteous and precious and secure. You don't have to bend over or backwards and perform activities for anyone's purposes. God has already called you, blessed you, and stated that you are good enough for him. Now, he comes and he says, listen, you're not good enough in your own. You're good enough because I am with you. You are good enough because I am in you. You are good enough because my spirit elevates you and renews you and empowers you. And there's no political system that can give you that. Second, so as not to offend. How do we learn, like Jesus, to practice when to be offensive and when not to? Like, how do we discern where to draw that line? Well, I've briefly described what I think is Jesus' principle, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus was so submitted to the Father's will to give his life as a ransom for many that he was focused on the gospel work. So this dispute over paying taxes, he clearly thought would be a distraction from getting to the cross. And in fact, we have another example where Peter, uh, where Jesus first tells the disciples that he is going to be a suffering Messiah. He's, they, Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, God has revealed this to you, the Christ. Let's talk about what that really means. And he tells them, the son of man must suffer and die. Peter says, oh, Jesus, come over here, man. I, I think you got this wrong. You misunderstand what the Messiah is about. You don't have to die. And what does Jesus say to him? Put it on there. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus is usually pretty nice. 
Like the disciples make mistakes, he corrects them, okay, but this is, I mean, he puts an end to that. He says, there will be no talk of a political Messiah, no talk of a military Messiah, no talk of avoiding the cross. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How many times have Christians set their minds on the things of man? How many times have we lost sight of our unique responsibility and and opportunity and calling to reflect and present God in the world? Now, what this doesn't mean is stop voting. I vote in every election I can get to. What it doesn't mean is don't organize or don't write letters to Congress. What it does mean is that before you post that inflammatory response on social media, talking about how the other side is ignorant or morally inferior and doesn't really understand what's going on and destroying the nation, take a moment. Ask yourself a couple of questions. Does this response help or hinder my Christian witness? Will it be easier or harder for me to share Jesus Christ with these people after this post goes up? Am I articulating my political position in a way that puts Jesus Christ on display? Peter describes our purpose as the people of God in this way. He says we exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Many of us will never lobby Congress, will never get a law written, uh, we're never even going to meet a politician in person, right? Many of our international brothers and sisters will never vote in an election. The Iranian brothers and sisters who are uh, in this Vancouver church, I doubt that they're going to get to vote for their president, all right? But if we spend our time and our treasure and our talents elevating Jesus in every area we can, that will change eternity. In fact, we will be using our politics to shine the light on Jesus rather than using our faith to promote our politics. Let me give you an example. Uh, The abolition of slavery. So the abolition of slavery in the West um, was involved a lot of different people, a lot of different stakeholders. But when Christians got involved, especially in uh, Britain, uh, the constant argument was this. God has made every man, woman, and child in his image. They carry the image of God, the fingerprint of God. They are, have an inherent value, and therefore slavery goes against that. It denies the truth that is baked into creation that God is sovereign and that all people reflect him. And we need to abolish slavery so that we can uh, show forth the values of God in the world. If you can think of a political stance that presents the gospel and elevates Jesus in the process, then you should support it. And you should be vocal about it because you are using politics to serve Jesus. Jesus is not the servant of your politics. Jesus is the king of the universe. And your politics should serve him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I read a lot of posts about uh, anger over COVID mask mandates and vaccine mandates. I can't think of a single one that did that. That elevated Christ or spoke about the inherent truth of God revealed in the world so that the gospel had more traction with those who had not yet decided. In the end, making an eternal impact means humbly telling the story of God, what God has done in your life. And anyone can do that. You don't even need to be a citizen. You don't even need to vote to do that. 
A faithful follower of Christ can do more eternal good with a two-minute testimony than the president of the United States can do in eight years in office. Amen? Last, something greater than the temple. All this fuss is about the temple. The book of Hebrews tells us that the temple is a mere shadow of heavenly realities. That is, the temple on the earth that the Jews made such a fuss about was important, but it wasn't a perfect picture of what was going on. It was just like a little hint. Uh, my daughter uh, did a, uh, like a biography school project on uh, a famous doctor, and she made this diorama of an operating room. She took a shoebox and she cut out these little cardboard figures and drew faces on them and hung some tinsel and did all this stuff. And it kind of looked like an operating room. But let me tell you, it was not an operating room. All right? The reality is, politics is a shadow. When Jesus Christ returns, he is not going to take the throne of America and become the American president of the universe. Every nation, every tongue, every man, woman, and child will bow their knee and will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Lord of America, Lord of the universe. Everything will pass away and Jesus Christ will establish his eternal kingdom. A 1,000 year millennial reign of perfect harmony, peace, and justice. Amen? So when Jesus Christ himself said in um, Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here, what he was saying is that the locus of relationship and connection to God is here in me, in my body, in the sacrifice that I, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will make, not in this temple. The temple is a shadow, and the temple is passing away. Our politics is a shadow of the government that Jesus Christ will bring. The scriptures tell us that a good government is a blessing from God and that the authority that our um, politicians have is from God, bestowed on them from God, right? But when the perfect comes, I promise you we will recognize it and we will lose our allegiance to our politics today and we will choose Jesus Christ, amen? So when you go to the polls, when you sit with your friends, when you consider your positions, let's remember that everything we see and everything we do will pass, but Jesus Christ will remain. All hail, King Jesus. I'm gonna invite the band while I pray. Dear Lord, we mess this up. Uh, we, we make a lot of mistakes. We get distracted. Uh, we don't even know how to, to rightly value and fight uh, the, the, the proper battles, but Lord God, I thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. I thank you first that you have made us sons and not servants. I thank you that our position and our identity is now firmly entrenched in Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, and that he has made us children along with him, co-heirs. I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom by your Holy Spirit so we might know how to represent you in the world, how to push for your values, how to show forth your glory, how to speak of your excellencies no matter what activity we're engaged in. And when it comes to our politics and our perspectives, Lord God, help us to push the gospel. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.